0: welcome to New Books in History. Hello and welcome to New Books in History. My name is Christine Lamberson and I'll be your host today. Today I'll be speaking with Callie Nicole Gross, who is the Martin Luther King Jr. Professor of History at Rutgers University New Brunswick. And we'll be talking about her book, which is titled Hannah Mary Tabbs and the Disembodied Torso, a tale of race, sex and violence in America. And this book came out in 2016 with Oxford University Press and just came out in paperback back, excuse me, this month. Hi, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about this book. Um it's a really uh, interesting narrative and has a little bit of mystery, unlike many a history book um, to it here. But before we do that, I thought we'd start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get interested in history and how did you decide to become a historian?
1: Oh wow. So I took a sort of circuitous route after college, I sort of knew that I wanted to do more school because as far as I was concerned, like traditional work kind (laughs) of sucked. I had been working since I was 14, Um, you know, from camp counselor to, you know, working as an intern at J.P. Morgan. Um, I knew that I didn't sort of fit in those molds. So when I initially went to graduate school, it was basically because I enjoyed school and learning, uh, and it was something I was good at. I didn't fully understand what it meant in terms of of a career until about midway through. Um, And at the same time that I sort of got a clue about kind of what really being a professor meant and the career and the trajectory, I was also working with a group of uh, black women who felt like we wanted to sort of give back, you know, to our, you know, our community, that we were at these really Ivy League institutions. I went to undergrad at Cornell and then for graduate school at UPenn. um, We felt sort of disconnected from the community. So we decided we wanted to volunteer in some way. And we thought, well, you know, what, what skills do we have that anybody might need? Like who would actually let us in Uh, To make a long story short, we ended up volunteering to team teach a course on black women's history at a women's correctional facility in Pennsylvania. SCI Muncie, State Correctional Institution at Muncie, Pennsylvania. Before that, I was not a historian at that point. I was going to graduate school for like American Studies or American American Civilization, which is what it was at UPenn. And when I got to the prison... I was struck by the architecture, the building itself looked sort of old. Uh, I mean, you had barbed wire fencing and this sort of thing, but the actual structure itself was really old. It actually looked a little bit like a campus. And I was trying to figure out sort of how long have like black women been here? Uh, because once I got on the grounds, I was astonished at the overrepresentation of black women in prison. I mean, we knew black women were there. It was why we were going, we were trying to teach this course. But up until that point, I really understood the issue around sort of race and mass incarceration as being something that mostly impacted black men. So it wasn't really until I was at Muncie walking through this odd sort of like, you know, campus. That I was struck by how many Black women were also incarcerated. So that's what sort of set me on this path, on not just sort of history, but also kind of Black the history of Black women's incarceration. Um, and one of the things I learned sort of early on, and you can sort of stop me because you know, a professor, I'll just go on forever, um, is that Muncie was was sort of erected in the 1920s. It was as this moment of women's reformatories, right? This whole women's reformatory movement where they felt like women needed special kinds of facilities to sort of re-educate them into domesticity. This is something that they mainly reserved for, like, young white women, certain young white um, Eastern European immigrants and this sort of thing. Uh, Only a handful of black women were there because usually people felt like black women weren't necessarily reformable in quite the same way usually ended up in custodial institutions. But in any event, Muncie was, they used a cottage design, and it was modeled after a college campus because they imagined it as being this place where like, they'd learn and reform. So that was why the architecture looked the way that it did in certain parts. So it was pretty wild. I also learned, too, that black women had been historically disproportionately represented in prison, often more so than black men.
0: That's fascinating. So I'm guessing your first book came out of this interest. Is that, is that right?
1: Yes, right. So that, I sort of went down, I call it, that began my descent into these studies. Um, and so, right, that was where my first book, Colored Amazon's, of crime, violence, and black women in the city of brotherly love was, was born. Um, it was in researching, again, wanting to just sort of figure out how long have, have black women been in sort of Pennsylvania's justice system. And it was fortuitous that I was in Pennsylvania because this is where the penitentiary system is born. In 1790 with the Walnut Street Jail and penitentiary house. And then, as now, black women were disproportionately represented. So I, that was the crux of my, my first book in doing that research. And it was actually during the research for that book that I came across this wild case about a, a black woman in a, a dismembered torso. I knew immediately that it deserved its own monograph. <laughs>
0: And so let's talk a little bit about Hannah Mary Tabs and how did she catch your interest? Of course, the dismembered torso and the fact that she has some uh, records about her make her immediately interesting. But how did you know that she deserved her own monograph right away?
1: You know, I will. So I'd like to have an intellectual answer for this, you know, that. <laughs> It, you know, all, all the sort of historical attributes that, you know, she represented and why it made her significant. But the truth is, it was this wild case about sex, adultery, violence, murder, dismemberment, and I was immediately all in. Um, I was not above any of the salacious details. I could not put the case down. The um, prisoner, the, the administrators at Eastern State Penitentiary, which was Pennsylvania's premier confinement facility in the late 19th century, um, and this is also where um, Hannah Mary Tabbs would, would later serve a, um, a sentence, they maintained scrapbooks where on their most sort of notorious inmates. And they had kept this scrapbook, and all these clippings of the case, the trial, and it was just pages and pages this wild case, I couldn't put it down. I mean, I was reading it from cover to cover. At one point, I was going to work it into the first book, but it was getting so sort of long. And, you know, I realized there were all these other intricate pieces and, you know, connections that I need to research. It's at that point that it became clear, like, this thing could be its own book. Um, And also for me, I was fascinated because... You know, I'm a black woman and I consider myself a historian of, of African-American women's, you know, experience in the, you know, here. Um, and I had never encountered a figure quite like her in history. And what I mean by that is most of black women's history is about resurrecting and reclaiming this past that for a variety of reasons has been omitted glossed over, or just plain old written out of traditional historical narratives. And so a lot of that work, and, and rightly so, concentrates on you know weighty issues, women who dealt with enslavement, with brutality, with disenfranchisement, folks during Reconstruction, uh, women who were activists, who were teachers, who were religious figures, who were artists, writers, folks who really persevered. Um, and triumphed. And those histories are important, but for me, part of what motivated my first book, you know, and certainly it was related to this book, was that that left us with kind of a one-sided understanding of Black women's experiences, that we have to allow for human frailty, and we have to also consider the plight of African-American women who maybe didn't go down this road, right? So And that was a big part of why I wanted to even look at women in the criminal justice system in the first place, was to resurrect those histories, to not sort of write them off and not to sort of take necessarily a a view that they had somehow failed or fallen short of social expectations. I mean, my research showed there were many, many ways that black women were railroaded into the criminal justice system. But also there were some women who made very specific decisions about breaking the law and on what terms and for a variety of reasons also. So all of that to me is a part of us having a rich, dynamic and balanced understanding of black women's history in the United States. And so Tabs was at this far end of the spectrum in terms of being completely outside of what we customarily encounter. Um, at the same time, she was not sort of like, you know, it wasn't as if she was a figure from out of space. I mean, she fit many of the demographics of most Black women in the city at that time. She was a Southern migrant, a number of Black women in that, you know, roughly 40%. Um, because the population of African Americans in Philadelphia had doubled from 1870 to 1890, um, you know, based on folks leaving the South. So she was a, a part of that migrant wave. She worked like 90 percent of the black women who worked in domestic service. So here you know, she was married. Um, she, you know, was presumably God fearing in some way. She certainly evoked God when it, when it suited her uh and her husband were married in the AME church, right? The African Methodist Episcopal Church. So they they had roots in these ways. Um which in which but, but that sort of like there ends kind of the commonalities. I mean <laughs> after that her profile sort of went completely off the rails in terms of you know her predilection for violence, for dominating people, for carrying on extramarital affairs she was unlike any other black woman i had encountered in history at that point and i was fascinated
0: she is an incredibly fascinating character and your book does a wonderful job of highlighting both her fascinating features but also as you just did there telling us a little bit about how her life is representative of larger trends um and i thought maybe we'd start with a few of those larger trends and then talk a little bit about the case and then maybe return to some of those larger trends towards the end. Um, So you already mentioned that she's a Southern migrant. And I thought maybe we could start by setting the scene of when this is taking place. So the, the body was discovered in 1887. So what that moment looks like for um black folks who are living in Philadelphia um for her for her husband um for her neighbors kind of what life is like at that moment
1: right okay this is a great question so it's a it's a fraught moment it is in some respects there we're coming off of you know we're we're out of the civil war and now the collapse of Reconstruction, as I call it, right? We are, but it's before we get sort of the canonization, or you know, or the um, the full on implementation of Jim Crow. So it's this period in between where, initially, you have black folks kind of heading to cities like Philadelphia and New York with great expectations, right? They really want to come and actualize the full rights of citizenship. And Philadelphia occupies this unique sort of space, I think, liminally for African Americans because it had such a robust and kind of progressive abolitionist movement. It also had one of the largest populations of free blacks before the Civil War. So it has a lot of um, sort of black-owned and independent institutions, right? It's foundational churches. It has schools that have been teaching Black students for a very, very long time. It has a a very sort of well-established Black community in the seventh ward. Um, So Philadelphia exists as kind of, you know, almost a would-be promised land for folks. They come there with great expectations, imagining that at last they're going to be able to live and as, as every other American does. And what they sort of quickly find out is that even though Philadelphia has this history of abolitionism and, you know, it's got these Quaker roots that tend to lean, have progressive leanings, it is still a very racist and segregated city. So they are quickly barred from more sort of lucrative paying jobs in, in sort of industri- you know, industrial jobs and shops. Uh, folks who have education are not allowed to teach their craft. Um, So it is a moment where they come with these great expectations and are sort of quickly disappointed to find that a lot of the institutional elements of racism are firmly in place um, with respect to discrimination, employment opportunities, and to some extent education as well. So that's The moment that we're in, but that, but that aside, there is still this robust and rich Black community. There are these Black churches that have been here. There are Black organizations. So it isn't a complete sort of bust, but it definitely falls far short of what I think many were expecting. And so this is the political, the social political moment that we're in and also it's this moment too where white people are having to respond or react to this increased presence of of black folks particularly southern blacks so you have native born philadelphians trying to figure out how they want to meet you know these black brethren coming from the south and they're not entirely thrilled about the folks migrating in mass either they're worried about them being ignorant and doing things that are going to sort of shame the race in some respects. And then for Philadelphia, the white Philadelphians, there's a concern in general about the increased black population. They also have concerns about sort of, you know, potential ills that come along with that. So crime quickly becomes a concern. And there also is this other concern about some of these black folks being able to pass, that you have these Blacks coming from the South who, you know, or mixed or, you know, what they use the term, mulattos, coming and potentially being able to sort of infiltrate white society because folks knew who they were in the South and they were segregated and kind of sort of contained. But now that they're moving into this urban city and this urban sphere, they are unknown entities. So some of them, you know, are white enough, you know, they look like any other white person, it would be difficult for them to tell. It's also a moment too where you have some other folks who we now regard as white coming over from like, you know, Ireland and Italy. And initially native-born white Philadelphians weren't entirely sure if those folks were white either. So whiteness was kind of, you know, itself sort of undergoing some challenges there, right? From, right. from a variety of spaces, right? They're not exactly sure. Like, are Irish people actually white? <laughs> right? Are these Italians white? Some of them look kind of swarthy to us. Some of them have these ruddy complexions. So they weren't entirely sure about those folks either. Then they, you have this other sort of moment where you could have these black folks who look white, you know, infiltrating. So there was a, a moment. There was a high anxiety around these issues.
0: Okay, one other setting the scene aspect. So in this moment of high anxiety, and there is a lot of anxiety about crime, how was policing typically done? Of course, we're getting to that this case is really unusual the way the um, re- public reaction and policing turn out. So how what was law enforcement like at that moment, especially vis-a-vis crimes that involved um this this black population whether new or old
1: philadelphia law enforcement had a long and fairly storied history for being somewhat corrupt um and you know an uh, an, op- an outfit that basically was rife with corruption and nepotism uh and also racial bias and brutality uh, at this point it was at what we would consider brutality i should back that up because at this time it was completely acceptable for police officers to beat up, you know, folks who, who were regarded as criminals. They might face some consternation if they accidentally beat up a member of, you know, respectable society, or you know, respectable classes. But short of that, people accepted that, you know, violence was just a part of the job. So it was not uncommon for them to sort of racially profile African-Americans, they found black folks walking in certain areas where they didn't believe they belonged, or if they felt that they were carrying goods that the police did not believe they owned, they could be stopped for that. Uh, If anyone had a prior record, then that was carte blanche for them to stop, detain, and potentially arrest and, and beat someone up in the process. Beat Beatings and intimidation were a routine part of interrogations of suspects. Many people were sort of coerced into signing confessions that they would later recant, you know, during, you know, or, or refute during actual trials and hearings. So it was a moment that in general was sort of kind of it was policing at this moment was pretty replete with things that we still are sort of combating today, but at that time we were fairly acceptable. And so you have that backdrop along with this sort of racial anxiety, and then you have this headless, limbless, racially ambiguous torso surface, right? They, you know, it does, without, they know it's a man or male body, but short of that, they can't figure out its race. And so this is what really drives the investigation because the concern, there are two concerns. One, I think it it played into this moment where you have a sort of racial science developing also that's aiming to prove definitively that there are biological distinctions between the races and that science is going to be able to ferret that out. So as racial science is sort of rearing its ugly head again, uh, at the same time that we had this fear about racial anxiety and also policing again, which was itself, you know, fraught with terms of racism, but also too, because the, the worlds were so sort of segregated, because the body was racially ambiguous, police really didn't know which community to search for suspects in, right? You know, this is a... and And also... Truthfully, if it was a black body, they pro- it probably wouldn't have gotten nearly the attention or the resources or anything uh, that they end up throwing at this case. Because I think they are they're invested one in trying to discern definitively is this a black man or a white man or a Spaniard or a Cuban or a you know, quote unquote Chinaman. You know, these were all the possible identities floated when this torso surfaces. But also if it is a white man, there was gonna be, you know they need to define who committed this crime. For the other folks, it would not have been nearly a priority. And certainly if it was a black man, uh, very few resources would have been devoted to it. And I can say that definitively because throughout the sort of investigation and the trial, you know, once they sort of dis- determine the actual identity of this torso, right? The case itself had become so big um, that it couldn't be ignored. But throughout the course of the the trial, other body parts surface in the Seventh Ward. This is the black community in Philadelphia, and once it is determined. That it's not related to this torso case, it just fades into the background. We never hear about it again. So all those other random black body parts that are dismembered in that you know are found in the seventh ward, there's almost no investigation of it. So this torso ends up being unique for for all of these reasons, and also in some respects, you know, he, he was. An unfortunate victim of a brutal crime, but his proximity to whiteness actually allowed for him to have a measure of justice that would not have been possible if he were sort of a traditionally phenotypically recognized phenotypically as a as a black man.
0: Yeah. And part of what you mean when you say this case has gotten so big is people are following it quite closely. Right. It's a media sensation, so to speak
1: it becomes a complete sort of frenzy. This headless, limbless torso surfaces in this town, Eddington, which is just outside of Philadelphia. The residents are aghast, right? They have all sorts of theories going as to who this could be. Because at the same time that policing is sort of replete with corruption and and all these sort of racial issues, in places like Bucks County, It also was a little bit more sort of frontiersy in the sense that they didn't have the same level of sort of police forces. Like, you know, in in Philadelphia, you actually had patrolmen. There was sort of an organized outfit with the chief of police. You had a detective's unit. You know, there's a harbor unit. But out in, you know, kind of the, the hinterlands there, the burbs or the more rural parts, it was really maybe a constable, you know, a sheriff or a deputy or somebody here or there. And then people sort of took a lot of the responsibility of keeping community safe on themselves. So with this torso services in Bucks County, the residents are aghast and immediately sort of become a part of this investigation. And so that also helps to sort of gin up the press too, because they've got all these witness accounts and people offering interviews, and you know, sort of the biggest thing to happen in this little tiny town. So there are these rumors that perhaps the Torso had been brought to Eddington from the city. So this brings, this gets the Philadelphia investigators involved as well. It starts to put them on notice at least that they may potentially be involved or have involvement in this Torso case as well. So this is how the case kind of moves from this tiny, sort of tiny town and you know the potential murder of of a person of color which normally would not get any attention to becoming sort of front page news
0: so the Philadelphia police get involved as well, but then in a a way that's almost quite familiar to today, especially to your average you know crime show watcher or whatnot, there's a little bit of push and pull between the Philadelphia police and the law enforcement, such as it is, and or the town in Eddington. Can you talk a little bit about that push-pull and sort of the move from Eddington to um, Philadelphia and kind of how they're both involved and sort of sharing, but sort of pushing against each other there?
1: Right. So exactly. As the case becomes more sort of sensational, everyone starts to realize that there there's a potential there there's there's some sort of jockeying that goes on in terms of who exactly is in charge who's who does this case actually belong to so the folks in the constable in eddington is sort of painstakingly going through and and doing his investigation he's interviewing a lot of folks he turns up some key witnesses particularly folks who remember a black woman who had been sort of Knocking on doors, she'd lost her way in the town that evening. But they also kind of touch or strike all they sort of strike gold in some respects when they come across a conductor who remembers a black woman with a southern accent who had taken the train that night carrying packages that matched the wrapping that the torso had been discovered in. So this is sort of. What kind of it it shows in some respects I think the prowess of that those small investigators, but it also ends up being their undoing because once they hit on that Philadelphia conductor, it is clear that the person traveled from the city out to Eddington just to dispose of the body that the crime took place in their sort of neck of the woods, they take over the case and they do it in a way where it's the Eddington investigators think it's premature, um, but they are sort of run roughshod over. Uh, Chief Kelly determines quickly that the you know the crime is taking place here. They get this conductor, and there's a name that has been floated around by the folks in Eddington that could potentially match the description that the conductor gives the police. There's a woman by the name of, of Shepherd or Tabs right Mary Hannah or Hannah Mary Tabs or Hannah Mary Shepherd who apparently had worked in Eddington as a domestic for a time she left about a year before but some folks you know had mentioned her impossible connection apparently there was another case a year before about a young girl who was associated with Tabs that had gone missing So to make a long story short, the police sort of home in on this Hannah Mary Tabbs as a potential suspect. They're trying to interview her. Um, They do actually catch up to her. They bring her before the conductor and he identifies her as the woman he saw taking the train out to Eddington that night carrying the packages. But Tabs is one of these classic moments, too, where it's almost like early sort of criminal behavior. Where, you know, there's that stuff about folks returning to the scene of the crime. Mm-hmm. There's this moment that is just I, it's, it blows my mind. At the same time that you have stories and, you know, in the paper about the police searching for this woman, you know, of Southern origin, you know, they, they have the name could be Shepherd, it could be Tabs. Hannah Mary Tabbs had actually returned to Eddington and gave an interview to reporters there, (laughs) she says, right. She says when she saw her niece's name in the paper, you know, she became concerned and thought that the case might have something to do with her missing niece. So she returned, she, you know, expresses concern about her missing niece She also throws a couple of names out there about folks she thought were involved. So so that all gets out into the paper and published. Meanwhile, the authorities are looking for her. So it becomes this sort of huge shock that when she's actually apprehended, they put it all two and two together, realizing this is the same person. So, I mean, that's just sort of one of the twists in this, this wild case. Um, (laughs) so many others and then of course the Philadelphia police not known for their um, uh, you know patients with suspects they basically you know give her the sort of rough treatment there and after a night in custody she basically talks Uh, and what she does is again you know throw out another name and blame the whole thing on Uh, a young mulatto by the name of George Wilson. So she, you know, confesses, you know, that this, oh, I, I need to backtrack. The other way that the authorities get your break, before I forget this, is that at the same time that the conductor has, you know, mentioned that there's this woman from Philadelphia, a woman actually goes to the police looking for her missing brother a young mulatto by the name of Wakefield Gaines. And she is very concerned that he has come to harm's way. And she mentions his paramour, Hannah Mary Tabs. And so this name now has been floated around in Eddington. And again, when she, this young woman walks in to, you know, the chief of, of detectives with this information, so they immediately are, are in the, on the hunt for her. So when they pick her up, they give her the rough treatment pretty much in in custody. And after a night, she talks. She makes a quote-unquote confession. But what Hannah Mary Tabbs confesses to is that, yes, Wakefield Gaines was at her home, that another young man came and stopped by claiming to have information about her missing niece. The two of these folks got into an altercation And George Wilson is the one who did the foul deed and basically forced her to go along with everything, including carrying this torso out to Eddington with the intent of throwing it over a bridge into a pond.
0: It is an amazing story, Um, and she is quite impressive. Can you talk a little bit more about how she is this unusual person? Because to a certain extent, this response to the police, this um, tendency or not tendency, this um, approach of, um, you know, blame, blame someone else and even go give the interview and try and throw out a few names and sort of control the situation in a way is something that she has done before without the murder aspect. Um, I'm not asking this question very clearly, but could you talk a little bit more about how she is in some ways an unusual person within the community and how she is, um, you know, her her experiences with violence and her neighbors and things of that nature.
1: Right. Once tabs is in custody, she confesses, she blames it all on this young mulatto named George Wilson The police go get him, arrest him. They think they've got everything in the bag, right? They've got the young man in custody, the woman who's associated with it. But the black folks in the community who the police also sort of round up to kind of offer, you know, supplemental evidence, they sort of paint a different picture of the woman in custody. They do not believe for one moment that George Wilson is responsible for this young man's demise. They describe Hannah Mary Tabs as someone who was incredibly violent, who was carrying on an adulterous affair with the victim that the two fought every day, including Sunday, right, that she had threatened many of them with death. They believed that she had killed someone else. People actually write to the, to the prison, right, write to the investigators, claiming that she murdered someone before She migrated. They also believe that she actually was responsible for her missing niece's death. They believe that she had killed the girl. So the police are sort of, you know, they're having they're kind of rocked back now with this new information. They actually have to go and investigate. They end up finding the missing niece, Annie Richardson. But she tells them a pretty disturbing story herself, right? So the good news is Annie Richardson is alive and not dead, right? The bad news is that she kind of corroborates many of the claims that they have received from the neighbors and other folks who knew Hannah Mary Tabbs, that she, that her her aunt was in fact her aunt, I put that in quotes and we can talk about that later if you'd like, um you know, was was in fact involved in some sort of adulterous affair with the victim. And also that her aunt would beat her unmercifully if the victim, Wakefield Gaines, showed her any attention. And she had gotten beaten so badly on one occasion that she was afraid that her aunt was going to kill her. So she took that night to run away and had not looked back since. So the police now are sort of caught where they have to sort of reassess who they've sort of you know earmarked as their primary, um, or they should have at least. But they really like Wilson for the crime, in spite of all of the, the neighbor's testimony about Tabs. Even her own husband tells the police that his wife has always been what he described as crazy, that she was very ignorant. He also is a lot older than her. Um, and it was interesting, John Tabbs, just sort of a historical geek note, John Tabbs was sort of like the honorable figure in this whole sordid affair. He was an older black man. He had served honorably During the Civil War, he was injured, he fought with colored troops out of Massachusetts. He was honorably discharged. Um, He married a much younger woman, estimates about 15, 20 years his junior, um, and tried to sort of train her up, right? He got her an education. Tabs learned how to read and write a little. You know, he married her, so she had like this measure of respectability and took her in with this, you know, this mulatto child she had in tow, who she referred to as her niece, but who her, you know, there are some suspicions about whether or not that story was entirely true. Um, But so John Tabbs became kind of my guiding light during the research for this book, because Hannah Mary Tabbs, when she was in custody, she gave, you know, she gave, sort of neighbors and everyone else, just uh, like the same way that there were all these different names floating around, whether it was Mary Hannah, Hannah Mary, whether her last name was Tabs or Shepherd, right? She, that was sort of a pattern with her. So when she was arrested by the authorities, she told them that she was originally from Virginia. And so when I was doing my historical research, trying to find her background, I'd spent all this time on what was essentially a fool's errand looking for evidence of Hannah Mary Tabbs' origins in Virginia, when it turns out that she was actually from Maryland. <laughs> Born in Anne Arundel County. Right. And so I found this out because John Tabbs had actually been interviewed. There was a, a German language newspaper in, out, of, um, out of the Baltimore, Annapolis kind of zone that had also covered the case because of it, it had these local connections. So John Tabbs' testimony sort of became the guiding light for me. More often than not, when I had records or information that Tabbs had provided, it usually turned out to be false. But nine times out of 10, when I had evidence of a, a record from John Tabbs, it turned out to be true. So he was sort of, he kind of helped me piece together her background by talking about her being sort of ignorant, by talking about him sort of seeking to get her educated, by talking about when and where they were married. I was able to go back in the National Archives and actually find their their marriage certificates and some records based on his, his Civil War records. Um, And her later, you know, applying for a widow's pension, you know, all of the things that John Tabbs said were true. So he was how I found out about her being from Anne Arundel County. And that kind of was an important piece of the puzzle, because Anne Arundel County in Maryland was, was still sort of heavily kind of, um, it, it employed a lot of slave labor, but I was never able to de- determine definitively whether or not um, Hannah Mary Tabs had been enslaved or not. What I did learn was that that particular county had been known for a fairly brutal and large slave-owning family. And in Anne Arundel County, there, you had a significant population of free blacks, but uh, the majority were actually enslaved. So you had these familial relationships where it wasn't uncommon for some people, some members to be enslaved, some members to be free. It was intermingled in a certain kind of way. So it's likely that even free people would have been subject or been well aware of the brutality that had been visited upon their enslaved brethren, um, particularly if they were uh, enslaved by this family, the rebels, who were known for beating people unmercifully, treating them cruelly, almost starving them. Um, it was a, a, a vicious sort of climate. And so I often sort of wonder about how that back, how that history coupled with Tabs herself sort of coming into her womanhood, you know, uh, you know during, you know, on, on the precipice of the Civil War, right? And then emerging from that moment Kind of alone with this mulatto child in tow, how much of that was related to the way that she comported through the rest of her life, which was, you know, by using violence and intimidation. And that was certainly something that John Tabbs had even testified to uh, when he was interviewed by the authorities that she was violent, that she was unbalanced, that she had actually been violent with him at certain points. Um, It was, he was an important piece of the sort of historical puzzle. And that background or that backdrop began to, for me, sketch out a little bit more about the brutality of that era. You know, that this is this moment where black people are on one hand seizing their freedom Right? using the Civil War as an opportunity to take off and try to join sort of union camps and, and outposts. But it's also a space, too, where they were also very very vulnerable to being you know, brutally treated. Black women were very vulnerable to rape and sexual assault. It was you know, a, a very, it was a cruel time. So the violence of the Civil War, there's a way in which those casualties and the, and the trauma of soldiers is more easily cataloged than the kinds of violences that can be visited upon young women or women and young and young girls.
0: So you've already started talking a little bit about your research, and I don't want to give away the end of the book and the end of this case, but I did want to talk a little bit about your research, so I... Uh, I thought maybe we'd talk a little bit about that now, or a little bit more about that. Um, You've already kind of uh, talked a little bit about how you were able to follow some threads, but can you talk more about the challenges of doing this research and what kind of records you're finding? Because as you said at the beginning, one of the things that's great about this story is your, or about this history, I shouldn't call it a story probably, but um, a great about this woman is that you're researching someone who we usually don't see in the historical record very well. But on the other hand, that's partially because they're really hard to find in the ho- historical records. So how did you find her or what kind of resources were you looking at to follow that narrative from John Tabs and others?
1: So Tab, at, on top of it, was someone willfully trying to sort of obfuscate history also. That was the other thing, right? She used so many, you know, different names and aliases and lied about various relationships with folks. So I had a wealth of newspaper coverage, which was unusual. Usually when I'm doing research on on black criminal justice system, you know, I've got like a dry, you know, prison roster, you know, maybe some records from the institution about the person uh, and a few lines of text in a newspaper if I'm lucky enough to have found it where they covered the case. So this was a complete opposite. Like I had a, tr- a wealth of of newspaper coverage. The case had been covered from Pennsylvania to like New York, Illinois. I found you know pieces on it in Missouri, Virginia, Baltimore, right. Even I said I mentioned the German language newspaper, right? Der correspondent. I actually had to have that translated, right, <laughs> to to get that information. But it was incredibly rich. And, and and because it talked about her being in Anne Arundel, from Anne Arundel County, having a brother and a father who was still there, talked about her being sort of well known for being a good cook. That also kind of lended some credence to the idea that she may have been enslaved, or perhaps close to a relative who was enslaved, because cooking was sort of a skill, right? Um, planters sort of you know, sent out folks to learn how to cook. They had to have, you know, some of the tools used for cooking. So these are some of the, the threads that I use. But as I said, John Tabs was my first kind of truth teller. When he told about when they were married and where, I was able to sort of trace that back. Once I learned more about him and the fact that he'd fought in the Civil War, I was able to find his records then I realized or I found out that Tabs had actually applied for a widow's pension after his death. And so that application became sort of like the Rosetta Stone for the case. Like, literally, that application was incredible because it had a copy of their marriage certificate from the AME church because she had to demonstrate that they were, in fact, married in 1874 she had written about his injury in the civil war that was where i learned that he was you know wounded in the groin perhaps it you know had been sort of ruptured there in some way and that this may have been why he sort of tolerated her having these sort of extramarital affairs um but also too it it had you know Hannah Mary Tabbs had signed one of her own documents. I could see her handwriting. She talked about sort of when they met, where she was living. It was also how I figured out what she was doing after this case and everything. And and her, you know, her brief sort of stint at Eastern. Um, That was really the Rosetta Stone for me. So between the newspaper, trying to corroborate evidence from the, the newspaper account the prison scrapbooks, her records at Eastern State Penitentiary, to then finding that widow's pension file, uh, which was just phenomenal because they actually took affidavits from folks who knew them because they had to corroborate right that she had this. In order for them to get this widow's pension, they needed to prove A, they were in fact actually the widow. And B, there was no other wife or anyone else who could potentially be entitled, you know, that they didn't separate or something that she was his, you know, his wife and that she had not been married to anyone else but him. She hadn't remarried. All of these things needed to be verified in order for her to qualify. And Tabs, because she had, again, you know, this habit of of sort of shielding her true identity and whereabouts, when the investigators first went out to verify who she was and where she was living, the people said that they didn't know who she was. So they had to do a follow-up investigation to confirm that she was who she said she was. So they were, right. So there were these affidavits and interviews of folks who knew them for when they were married, uh, when they moved to Philadelphia, when they moved back to the Baltimore area this sort of thing. So that, those records were were sort of golden for me. The other sort of really important and I think kind of unsung historical source, which for me also was a mine, were the city directories. Your city directories were kind of like the forerunners of what, you know, now I think, I don't know how old you are, but when I was younger, it would, be, it would have been the forerunner of like the telephone book. So... It had. It would have like their name, sometimes depending on the year, their race in parentheses, what what their job was and where they lived. So the city directories were really helpful for me in sort of teasing out and tracing how, how Hannah Mary Tabbs had moved from Annapolis to Baltimore to Philadelphia. It helped me kind of trace out how John Tabbs and Tabs may have first met, um, and when. It also helped me to sort of map some of the folks who were involved in the case in other ways. So like George Wilson, learning about where his people were, where they lived, to see the proximity of their streets. So, So I figured, oh, he lived around the corner. So this is how she would have seen him coming and going. This is how her niece would have befriended him this sort of thing. So the city directories were also really important for piecing together a lot of that information. And of course, census data um, played a a significant role. But for me, census data has been very hit or miss. Because, you know, the population of, of black folks at this time, particularly the folks that I study, tended to be sort of pretty transient. So I didn't always have the best of luck locating them in census data in the ways that I did in finding them more in sort of city directories. And the city directories came out yearly. So I could find out where if they had moved from one year to the next or for a few years to a different neighborhood, if they'd switched jobs. That allowed me to have their employment histories as well.
0: Yeah, that's super helpful (laughs) to be able to look at those. It was. And then, of course,
1: I mean... I also really, really lucked out in finding the mugshots for Hannah Mary Tabbs and George Wilson. I mean, yeah, those just, are great. It's just not something you get every day. My, I really wish that I, I had found the one for Gaines, um, but there was an etching of him in the newspapers that I was able to to use to give at least to get a sense of what he looked like
0: well you've done a very impressive job with the research and i really enjoyed the book i hope that listeners will go read it um it's a, a page turner in a, the best of ways as well as very illustrative of what's going on during that time or very informative about that time so we've taken a lot of your time before you go though uh what are you working on now what's up next for you so i'm working on a book, a co authored book with uh, Dinah Ramey
1: Berry called A Black Women's History of the United States. So it is a historical survey of African American women's history from really pre enslavement to the present. And it's going to come out with Beacon Press. It's meant to be intellectually rigorous but also accessible. It's what I strive for with all the books to be engaging to try to reach as wide an audience as possible
0: that sounds great i look forward to it and thank you so much again
1: thanks so much for having me this is awesome (laughs) thank you